Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today we've got episode 94 and I got an email grab bag full of stuff to talk about again this week. I do want to follow up on some feedback on that Shawshank Oak story I talked about in last episode. Also some developments in the whole uh, Russian plywood thing going on. A little bit of Emerald Ash Borer talk and some emails. Uh, wow, a lot of emails. We'll see what we can get to today, but certainly we talk about log scaling, got a little bit more talk on bugs because people are paranoid about bugs, some of the weird dust that comes off a of tropical material, and uh, well, we'll see what other trouble I can get into along the way. As always, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sending in those questions. Thank you for becoming patrons and supporting the show. You can always do that at patreon.com slash lumber update. But most importantly, you can support the show by sending in your questions. I want to hear from you guys on what lumber industry stuff is coming to your world. What do you have questions about? What other things can I dive into? I've always got a lot of various topics kind of in the email grab bag, but also I love it when I can come up with a kind of single focus topic show based on a question you have. So there's no question too dumb, no question too big, no question too small. Send them in and do that at lumberupdate at gmail.com or just go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form that you can fill out there to submit those questions or feedback or any of that stuff. So let's talk a little bit about some industry news. Um, some people have sent me some pretty cool stories here. I, actually, this is one that uh, I came across. And I've talked in the past about delignification of, of wood to create like see-through wood. And pe- people, maybe people using wood to make windows in um, timber buildings and timber skyscrapers and things. Well, there are some scientists back at it, this time over at Rice University. And they figured out a way to delignify the wood, so pulling out the the really the color, the pigment to the wood itself, and then infusing the cellulose with um, molecules of a carbon dioxide trapping crystalline porous material uh, that will essentially allow the wood to continue to absorb carbon and actually make it stronger. So we often talk about carbon sequestration as a tree grows, it's sequestering carbon. We know that, right? Back in, in uh, was that middle school? Probably elementary biology, you know, chlorophyll, they take in carbon dioxide and put out oxygen. We all know that. Well, once a tree cuts down and it's no longer, for lack of a better term, breathing, it's not sequestering carbon dioxide anymore. Here is a process that is actually infusing the wood with something is going to continue to sequester carbon. And because it's sequestering that carbon, it's actually like adding to the density and making the the strength properties of the wood even bigger, even stronger. So kind of cool, as typical with a lot of these kind of way out the R&D stories. You know, this is this is at a university level. Who knows how long it could be turned into something um, commercially applicable or if it even will. But I just think it's cool that so many of these, especially these instances where we're talking about sustainability and cleaning up the environment, so much of the time we keep coming back to wood as a raw material. It's definitely the most flexible material for this type of molecular, chemical, physical modification. So I don't know. As a wood guy, I just love to hear that. Um, couple of stories have come across my desk about Russian plywood, all of them kind of similar, but the one that's really, um, speaking to me the most is, uh, some people have been, I don't want to say caught, 
but identified as still importing Russian birch. And it brings up an interesting question. So there is a story, I've seen it in a couple of the big papers and a couple of the local papers that um, Menards, the Midwest big box store, has been uh, identified as importing Russian birch plywood. And the fact of the matter is, is the plywood is coming from a, a company branded as North American Plywood. But a little bit of investigating and peeling back the layers of the holding companies and things like that, it turns out that North American Plywood is actually owned by a Russian oligarch. So, but here's the thing. There have been embargoes by the U.S. placed on certain Russian exports, but timber is not one of them. So it is technically not illegal to import Russian timber or Russian plywood. It's just really, really, really bad form, right? From a PR perspective, we don't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. So, you know, is our people knowingly doing this? I'm not going to make a, you know, a judgment call on that. Who knows? You might think that if you're buying something, you've investigated who you're buying from. But I was actually talking to uh, one of my uh, contacts in the plywood industry who's done quite a bit of work internationally uh, from as far-flung reaches as China to, you know, mainstream Western Europe like France, where there's a lot of really high-end plywood made. And this idea of having multiple holding companies in different countries with kind of regional-sounding names like North American plywood or American-made, things like that, like uh, uh, I'm making up a name, America's best plywood, you know, things like that happen. Uh, companies like that happen all the time. And there's many, many different reasons for doing that. Some of that is just the ability to do business in a foreign country. You need a, a, a company based in that country. Other times it's for shady reasons, like add more layers to hide where it's coming from. Sometimes it's all about marketing. You know, if it's coming from North American plywood, you won't hesitate to buy it because if it's coming from, you know, Shanghai plywood, you're immediately like, oh, I don't want that Chinese plywood. So this is pretty common amongst Russian companies and Chinese companies who are forming these shell companies, branding the plywood something that sounds local and regional, and then selling it to American retailers. Now, is it the responsibility of the retailer to know where their product is coming from? Absolutely. Um, how far is due diligence? Like how far do you dig to find out if this is, uh, this is quality stuff? More importantly, when it's technically not illegal, how far do you dig? Like you, you dig a little bit because you don't want to, to, to cross that line. You don't want to support um, the Russian invasion. But at the same time, like you've got customers and you wonder, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not excusing anybody here, but you can see how easily this can happen. If there are seven layers, 15 layers of holding companies in the way of this. And you just, it's really difficult to, to find out where it's coming from unless you're like a member of the NSA or the CIA or another one of those three letter government agencies. It can be really hard to determine this. So certainly I'm not gonna excuse Menards, but at the same time, they didn't actually do anything wrong. They did something maybe ethically wrong, morally wrong, public relations wrong, but they didn't do anything illegal. So it's it's very interesting when you come into this. And of course it makes you wonder why why Temper hasn't made it into an embargo when we've embargoed things like Russian diamonds and other products. Why has Temper not made it, especially when you consider the volume of Temper? And maybe, politically speaking, that's exactly why. Because there's so much Temper products exported from Russia, sold daily in, in the North American market. Maybe they realized how detrimental that would be to an economy. I don't know. They, I'm speaking very conspiratorial here. But the other thing is, if you were to ban... Russian birch, what is that actually going to do? Um, 
Does it shift the market to Finnish birch? Probably not, because the connection between Finland and Russia when it comes to birch plywood is so small. Like, you can take a train from Russia to Finland, folks. You can certainly take a ferry. Um, huge amount of Russian nationals in Finland, also Ukrainian nationals in Finland that fleed to, to Finland after the invasion. There's a lot of Russian businesses based in Finland. There's a lot of, quote, Finnish plywood that is actually produced in Russian mills and Russian uh, birch that is produced in Finnish mills. So can you really draw a distinction between Finnish plywood and Russian plywood? I don't think so. So if you outlaw Russian birch, you kind of sort of have to start outlawing Finnish birch. Well, if that's the case, then the Russians are going to sell all their birch to China, who doesn't care, and then produce Chinese birch from Russian material. So it's really hard. I mean, this I, I, I sympathize. I don't want to buy Russian products any more than the next guy, but it's a really tangled web and it suddenly becomes very difficult. So now the solution is ban birch plywood altogether. And well, now, like now you're banning American producers of it. And what, what do we do? You know, until we come up with a decent alternative for shop grade plywood, this is a really tough nut to crack. So as, as usual with stuff like this, it's not, you know, pardon the lumber pun, but it's not quite cut and dried. Uh, we want to do the right thing. But man, when you start digging into it, it's really hard. What is the right thing? How do you navigate this forward? And moreover, if you were to put forth some embargoes or regulations, how do you regulate that? How do you enforce that? Um, and, and what is that going to do to other industries that might be hindered by the fact that we're trying to enforce this? If you can figure that out, then you can figure out, okay, the cost of you know the hindrance on the indus this industry is worth this embargo against the Russian Federation. Maybe, you know, but this just highlights certainly no, no conclusions, no solutions here. It just highlights how complex international trade actually can be. Let's move on to a brighter story here. We've talked about the Emerald Ash Borer um, many times on this podcast, and I get questions about it all the time. Um, I had some interesting input from a lot of foresters at the International Builders Show in Vegas who, um, you know, I was there uh, talking about a thermally modified ash product. You know, one of the questions that comes up is, are we really hitching a wagon to an ash product when emerald ash borer is taking down the ash trees in such large numbers? You know, the response to that is, well, there's also a, a red oak thermally modified product as well. But talking to a lot of people actually out in the forest cutting down these trees they're starting to say, you know, we've been hearing about the emerald ash borer for a while and how, you know, the ash tree is going to be gone in the next five years. And then five years go by and they say, well, in the next five years, it's going to be gone. And then 10 years go by. Well, in the next five years, the ash trees will all be gone. And yet it's still, they're still not all gone. Yes, there've been a lot of ash trees taken down by the emerald ash borer, but so far it's not at a point where you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to be extinct. So what's the deal here? Is it as bad as people are saying, or is it not? Well, here is a group of uh, New England researchers. This is, um, oh shoot, uh, credit where credit's due. This was passed to me oh, by multiple people. That's why I don't have a name on it. Okay, so uh, a couple of New England entomologists have uh, been researching uh, a biosolution here. And the biosolution is, uh, the, easiest, the easiest way here is we have a boring insect. Well, what are its natural predators? can we introduce that natural predator to this insect? So the emerald ash borer is an Asian boring beetle. 
um, came over from Asia. That's why it started affecting North American trees. North American trees didn't have any defense for it because the beetle was from Asia. Well, what's keeping the emerald ash borer in check in Asia? Well, it turns out there is a little wasp that is like the size of a mosquito, a stingerless wash, wasp that is the natural predator of the emerald ash borer. And doing some investigations and labs and things like that, and you know, because you have to be careful if you uh, inject another foreign species in, what's what's that going to do, right? The butterfly effect could cause more problems. So this is what these guys do: is figure out is this going to cause a problem? Will it even solve the problem of the ash borer in the first place? So ten years ago, they started uh, colonies of these wasps up in New England. And 10 years later, they're now discovering that, first of all, the colony is self-sustaining and it's reproducing that wasp can survive in New England forests. And while they're still having trees coming down, they're still seeing evidence of emerald ash borer larvae in the mature trees, they're not seeing it in evidence in the younger trees. Now, there's a big, great big but here because you don't really know until the tree has been felled and you can actually cut it open. You can't tell how much boring is actually going on. So what they're doing is investigating the trees that have been felled because they've been killed by the emerald ash borer and comparing like, you know, a dead tree is a dead tree. It's very unfortunate, but how many larvae were found in this tree and how many larvae were found in this tree? And they are seeing that decline in larvae found in the dead trees and um, visible sites in live trees have not been found in the younger stocks. So the conclusions, again, they're saying it's still very, very early, but these entomologists are quite optimistic that maybe the introduction of this wasp could be turning the tide against the emerald ash borer in this small area in New England. So finally, some good uh, news about the whole thing. In case anybody's asking, this is a nameless wasp, a stingless wasp about the size of a mosquito. Um, very common in Asian and Russian forests. These wasps naturally target and attack the emerald ash borer. Um, yeah, but yeah, for some reason, they're, they're calling it a nameless wasp. Maybe they just couldn't figure out what the name was. But yeah, these biosolution ideas, using nature to solve other problems um, is, is very cool. It's not the injection of chemicals or uh, 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 genetics like they're trying to do with the American chestnut, but just introducing a natural predator. And if that predator can be then held in check and doesn't you know, one run rampant and take out American crops and things like that, it could be a viable solution. So yay. Finally, maybe, hopefully, some good news on the Emerald Ash Borer. I want to move on to some feedback. I got some really good stuff here. First of all, some stuff about the, the Shawshank Oak. I will get to that in a second. But a while ago, I did an episode on opportunistic logging and talking about roadside logging. And I think I might have been a little cavalier in my suggestion. So I'm really glad that Eli wrote in. Um, Eli is a highway consultant. He says, I've spent... Uh, almost 20 years on the side of roads across North America. I said, stress, this is the last place the general public should be. I've had my maintenance crews uh, bring me back a log here and there. This is Matt's fault. Um, but I would not go get that log myself alone. Road workers, police officers, and tow truck drivers are constantly being hit by traffic. We put out signs and complete traffic control setups with trucks and strobe and errant vehicles still slam into us on far more frequent basis than seems reasonable. If someone is going to do roadside opportunistic logging, please be safe. 
Get as far off the road as possible, limit exposure to traffic, wear some damn chaps. I <laughs> love that. Uh, as the son of a forester, I would not encourage someone to go buy a battery saw and go get logs off the side of the road. To each their own, I'm not being a hard ass, but if the road is an interstate or a state road, it is technically state property and the trees are also state property. While it is unlikely anyone will get anything but a stern warning, it could be considered illegal. You have been warned. Very nice. I really appreciate this this uh, perspective because, like I said, um, I'm talking. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of my own experience. I'm like thinking of my drive to work, which I don't hit a single interstate. I specifically have these routes that take tiny little back roads. That frankly, these are roads that I like ride my bicycle on that have like no traffic, and it may be a little bit longer, but it's just beautiful, and I get to drive through trees because, as we all know, I'm a wood nerd. So in my mind, as I was talking about that opportunistic logging, I'm thinking of the logs on the side of the road. For instance, somebody just took in a poplar, massive, massive poplar. Unfortunately, it's been bucked to length, but there's still like four foot lengths there, and every time I drive by it, I think about you know rolling one of those uh, out, but. Here's a perfect example. Even though, uh, setting Eli's example aside, which I'll get to in a second, even though this is on a quiet road, it's on a hillside embankment. And while that log is like, I would have to really pull on that sucker to get it free from kind of the muck and the mire. As soon as it comes free, gravity's gonna take over and that sucker is gonna roll down and kill me. A four foot, like 36 diameter, 36 inch diameter log, I don't even know how much it's gonna weigh, but it's gonna be enough to crush me and kill me more than likely. If not kill me, certainly break legs, limbs, all kinds of nasty stuff. So this is something you gotta be really careful with. But taking into account Eli's point here, like I'm saying, yeah, stop alongside of the road, check it with a homeowner, make sure it's okay that you take it. But yeah, if you're on a highway, hell no, folks, don't get out of the car. And and he's absolutely right. Like if you're there pulling a log off the side of the road and a police car drives by, he is going to stop. If for no other reason to say, get back in your car, this is unsafe, but also to say, look, you're stealing lumber at that point. So thank you. Thank you very much, Eli, for that um, fresh perspective. We woodworkers tend to get a little bit uh, excited when we see logs on the side of the road. Just like you were in your shop with a screaming table saw, safety first, folks. Think about that. All right, let's get into the Shawshank Oak issue. First and foremost, the initial hearings on this were due to happen, I believe, on February 9th. I have not been able to find anything on this since the initial story saying it was going to initial hearing. Now, knowing how the legal system works, having sat on jury duties on a number of occasions and seeing like how uh, depositions and all the initial steps before even going to a trial and all that possible if this even goes to a trial, you know, it can take weeks and months and months for it to happen. So it's highly possible nothing has happened to report on it. I'll just throw that out there. If anybody does find something that's happened on this or in the future, if you find it, please send it to me. I'm keeping an eye out for it, but I would love the help of all of my listener army to find these stories too, because so far I've heard absolutely nothing on where this has actually gone in the courts. So first thing we want to talk about is Andrew completely disagrees with me on my assumptions, and he sent in a voicemail that I wanted to play. Hey, Shannon, Andy in central Pennsylvania, third time caller, I think. Uh, I think you are wrong on the Shawshank tree. I think that um, if there had been no prior sales, yes, it would be very specious to say, oh, well, this will be worth. People try to do that all the time, you know, selling things in antique co-ops or whatever. But until someone buys it, you're just putting a number on it randomly. In this case, I saw ads years ago for Shawshank tree pieces. So I know that this has been an ongoing sales uh, event so they have history. So if they can make that case, 
I, th- I think a judge would fairly say the sales are not based on being a rock hammer, but being a rock hammer built from the tree. Uh, I think that's very obviously where the value comes for those specific items. Um, as a, a collector type myself, that's that I, I definitely believe that that is a valid argument. So um, I would figure that a liability insurance claim would be what would pay out. I'm hoping a, a mill wouldn't have to go broke over that, but they did burn up 500 board feet of somebody's product they were supposed to be holding. Whether it was a fair price to hold it or not, that's moot. Um, they that was there in their care and uh, they messed that up. So um, I wouldn't want to be their liability insurance right now because I think there's a case to be made that prior sales do indicate the raw material had an inherent value that 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 played into it. Uh, love the discussion and thanks for bringing it to the show. Fantastic perspective, Andrew. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, I've gotten contact from a few other folks via Instagram uh, saying they remember seeing uh, Shawshank Oak pin blanks being sold for $5 a piece. So somebody even went so far as to actually calculate like 500 board feet, you know, your average pin blank being three quarter by three quarter by about six inches long. You actually went to the calculations to figure out like how much that would be. Um, I don't have my Instagram up in front of me, but it was a lot of money. Um, you know, hundreds, uh, hundreds of thousands could be very easily done from that. And Andrew has a good point. If you could actually draw like here are my previous sales and you know, hopefully anybody who's selling this stuff is going to have these records for no other reason for tax purposes to be able to show like I sold a rock hammer for this. I sold a bunch of pin planks for this. Here is ongoing, um, you know, years of sales. Uh, and, and, you know, you could even show seasonal dips and kind of overall average volumes. Yes. I think that that could be, um, a strong value, a strong way to value that lumber. However, Paul has an interesting take on this as well that I thought was interesting. Well, of course, I thought it was interesting. Um, Let me just read you what Paul has written. He says, first off, I'm a geek, not a lawyer, but I owned a business for 20 years and attended a bunch of business law seminars when I was developing my service contract. The number one lesson I learned was that the Uniform Commercial Code, or UCC, covers general terms of business transactions, but doesn't address the valuation of goods and services. As a result... Any valuation not explicitly stated in a B2B contract becomes subject to judge's decision. This is especially risky in valuation of terms involved in the transaction that could be lost, destroyed, or damaged. So as an example for my business was boxes of paper business records. We performed document imaging services and had hundreds of boxes of client records in our facility on any given day. Our contract explicitly stated that a box of business records was valued at $2. If a customer disagreed, it was their responsibility to negotiate a different rate or fund insurance to cover their valuation prior to executing the contract. Otherwise, if something bad happened, the business was on the hook for $2 a box in damages. I did not want a judge to arbitrarily decide that each box was worth $1 million. So this brings us to the Shawshank Tree case. If I was the judge, I'd be looking at the communication that initiated the milling process. Even if it was strictly oral, it's a contract. It's just harder to prove that uh, that what was and wasn't said. If the tree owner did not share the backstory of the wood, the ruling would be damage of less than a dollar a board foot. If the owner told the miller that he was using the wood to make commemorative items to sell to fans of a movie, but didn't add, and therefore this tree is worth $500,000, I would rule the same, that damages were under a dollar board foot. The logic evaluation is that the owner of the tree can't assume that the miller will draw the conclusion that due to the intended purpose of the log, it was worth more than any other random wet oak log. 
On the other hand, if the owner has told the Sawyer that the value he attributed to the log and the miller agreed to perform the work, I would rule that the damages were $500,000 and the miller should have exercised more care in the management of this one-of-a-kind log. The care of the log also falls into the realm of bailment law, but I'll stop here. Final note, don't ever take legal advice from a geek hobbyist woodworker that attended a few business law seminars 25 years ago and never get involved in a land war uh, in Asia or, or take a dare from a Sicilian. Um, yeah, those are all important things. So he, here's another perspective that I, I really love here. Um, what was the contract between the landowner, the, the guy that was selling this material, and the sawyer? Um, and it very well may have been, you know, hey, Joe, I've got this log. I'm going to be using it to sell this stuff. Um, you know, can you hang on to me until I need more? And it could have been a very friendly thing or it could have been more of a business thing. Um, ultimately, if the sawyer knew what he was doing, he probably would have had valuation stated in his initial contract. Um, and I've got a question on this that's kind of unrelated, but we'll come back to that in a little bit about the value of your inventory and any sawmill worth its salt does have an idea of the value of its inventory. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was something in a contract. And again, maybe it was oral, having been to enough of these uh, kind of backcountry sawmills before, you never know. Now I'm making an assumption, that's a horrible assumption. This may not be a backcountry sawmill. Although the fact that they burned a bunch of lumber does sound like, I'm not sure about that. Fire in lumber yards, not a good thing. We don't generally voluntarily burn stuff in lumber yards. But anyway, I would, I would wonder if there was some sort of uh, valuation determined between the guy who sold them the log, um, or not sold them the log, called them to, told them to store the log, and the guy was holding on to the log. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how this comes out. Um, yeah, like I said, could be legal precedent setting. You never know. Anyway, let's let's move on to some emails here. You guys remember a while back, I did an interview with uh, Jacob Sedmak of Sedmak Custom Contracting. Uh, he was about the mobile sawing episode. Jacob actually sent me an Instagram, a uh, couple of photos of a five-year-old log. Uh, I want to say it was an oak log. Now I'm forgetting the species. It doesn't really matter. It was a 34-inch diameter log that had been felled more than five years ago and kind of sitting in the mud, not covered, nor had the ends been sealed. And I'm going to include this image as the feature image for this um, this podcast. I'm also going to include this on my um, Instagram feed, uh, at Lumber Update, um, because the checking, he's got a board cut out of this, and the checking on the end of that log, unsealed log, goes about three inches in, and then it stops. And the color change showing the amount of moisture in the log is dramatic. Like the center of that log is still sopping wet. So in answer to all of the questions, I even did an episode on this, like how long will the log be good? And people have asked like, this log has been down, you know, is it gonna go bad? Is it gonna rot? Um, certainly, again, always variations based upon species and climate, but a log is going to hold its moisture for a hell of a long time. And even an unsealed one, it's not like it completely fell apart. Yeah, this particular log, um, it, you know, you're gonna have to cut off those three to four inches or so, but even if it went deeper than that, maybe you cut off a foot, um, there's still really, really good, really wet wood inside of there. So Jacob, thanks for thinking of me and thanks for the visual that I, I will include. So again, if you are um, uh, watching this on a podcast, depending on what podcast app you're using, you may or may not see uh, a featured image, but certainly if you aren't already following me, go to Instagram, Lumber Update Show, 
I think I said lumber update before. Lumber update show is my handle and I'll be posting that image there as well. And also, by the way, that's a great way to submit your questions to the show. You can uh, direct message me or even put it in a comment on one of my posts and I will often answer those. I get some really good questions via Instagram. So thank you everybody for sending in good questions via Instagram. Let's move on to Kyle's question. He says, a secret Santa uh, got me one of Ron Hawk's blades to make a wooden spoke shave and I've been having a blast making and fettling it. However, I made the mistake of choosing to use some ePay that my brother-in-law gave me to try out. This wood is nuts. My tenon saw leaves a polished surface on a crosscut. My joiner, well, why are you using a tenon saw to make a crosscut? Tenon saw should be filed rip by definition. But this is not a woodworking show. This is a lumber show. Tune into Wood Talk Show. (laughs) <laughs> to talk about that. Maybe I'll do a hand tool school podcast one of these days. I don't think there's a dedicated hand tool woodworking podcast anymore. There've been some ones in the past, but I think they've all retired. Maybe it's time to have a hand tool school podcast. Um, let me know, folks. Totally unrelated to the lumber industry update. But anyway, I, uh, I digress. Kyle says, um, my joiner plane just skips off the face when trying to plane it. I've had success with a heavily cambered jack plane iron, but it's still tough going. For those of you who don't know, Ipe has a hardness of over 3,800 pounds per square inch. It's like granite. It's ridiculous. Um, The most interesting, uh, Kyle goes on to say, the most interesting thing to me so far is this bright orange dust that comes out of the wood. The sawdust itself is brown, but there's also some kind of yellow orange powder that sprays everywhere when sawing or planing the wood. Is this Tylos? Some kind of extractive? It feels like something I should take extra care to clean off my tools right away, but I'm not not sure if that's actually the case or not. No, it is not Tylos, um, nor can you say, is it an extractive? An extractive is pulled out of the wood. What's causing the color of that is the resins or the extractives of it. So it's not like extractive. You can't really say, oh, extractive is, is you know, pouring out or blowing out of the wood. Uh, extractive is in everything. It's in the sawdust, the brown sawdust, as well as the orange sawdust. It's it's what makes up the wood itself. When you extract that from the wood, from the cellulose, the hemocellulose, the lignin, technically lignin could be an extractive if you extract it in delignification. Every time I hear delignification, I think of that little kid, um, well, elf in uh, the Santa Claus 2, and he says, the, the desantification process has begun. I know we're past Christmas, but that's what's running through. That's what's playing on repeat in my head every time I say delignification. There's a little scary peek inside my brain there, folks. It's a wonder that I can ever stay on topic with those kind of voices in my head. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, Ipe dust. Um, Ipe is not alone here. In fact, the, the orange powder you're seeing, that's just finer dust. And what you'll find is probably that orange powder, if you were to leave it on the bench long enough, it's probably going to change colors and turn to a deeper brown. Um, You also may find that it changes other colors and you get purples and greens. Depending upon the piece of Ipe you're cutting with, you can get green powder coming out and kind of cream color powder or gray color powder. Ipe is full of oils and resins. It's one of the reasons it makes it such a good decking wood. But tropical woods in general, that's what makes them good decking woods, exterior woods, because of the amount of oils and resins and all kinds of things that the bugs hate then also end up repelling water. So for me, I remember one of my clear examples was um, Cocobolo. Um, and now it's a CITES listed species. Uh, I used it for years when I was turning and like 
orange, like bright, like fluorescent orange, like hunting safety vest orange would come spewing off my roughing gouge as I was working on the lathe. And then as I went deeper into that piece, as I was cutting like a cove deeper, it would turn green and then it would turn pink and purple. And I would then look down at like the, the ways of my lathe and there'd be like this rainbow or like some sort of beach sand art thing going on. And then I'd like maybe turn some other stuff, go somewhere, maybe run to the restroom, come back and those colors would have all mellowed or kind of unified into more of the just kind of a brown sawdust as they were reacting with oxygen. So it's basically, you're just hitting into, um, call them veins of a, a resin rich area, a, a mineral rich area of the wood, and it's going to cause you know those those bright colors. Um, probably, if I think about this long enough, like the size of the dust itself. So he's talking about a fine powder. You know, it's just finer sawdust. Um, and due to the density of that particular vein, you may find that the chips you're getting are, uh, are, are much, much finer because that wood is particularly dense or maybe you're coming into uh, a, a faster growing section that's going to peel and shave away a little bit easier and give you bigger chips or shavings. And then you come into that really, really dense stuff and you're just kind of getting dust out of it. Anybody who's worked with Sapili or, or even Douglas fir understands that variation between early and late growth. Um, not so much since Sapili, since it's a tropical wood, but there is a definite density variance um, in quartered Sapili. And you get really, really dusty stuff coming off of the really dense stuff. Or in Douglas fir, it gets kind of dusty on those really dense, darker pink pieces. That comes off as a fine dust, whereas the less dense stuff comes off in larger, more traditional sawdusty type chunks. That's what you're seeing. One thing I will tell you is um, keep that stuff off your skin keep that stuff out of the air, like wear a respirator, keep an air cleaner going. Um, you may be perfectly fine. Everybody's going to react differently, but more often than not, people have reactions to that because of the resins and the, the, um, the stuff, the, the gunk, the chemicals and things that are in there. Um, you're going to find all kinds of possible reactions that can happen. Worst comes to where our worst case scenario are, are respiratory issues. And in many cases, it will certainly cause your tools to rust or certainly stain. So yeah, it's a good idea to, to wipe that stuff. If for no other reason, dust on your tools, wood, dust, wood in general is hydrophilic. It loves water. Um, it's going to absorb that water, which is going to lead to rust on your tools. So yeah, definitely clean that stuff off. But I'd be more worried about skin uh, irritation and certainly a respiratory irritation. Chris is paranoid about the bugs. He says, after listening to your show and hearing about bugs and lumber, I'm feeling more paranoid. I have some air-dried lumber that is a few years old now. Can I kiln-dry that lumber now with minimal effect to the air-dried quality and kill the bugs? Is this something I can do at home with some insulation and a small heater? I looked at local kiln-drying services and they're wanting about 3 to $4 a board foot. And at that rate, I could just go buy some S2S lumber. So here we go, Chris. A uh, couple things going on in this question. First and foremost, um, you know, can you dry, kiln dry that lumber? Absolutely. There's no reason why you can't have a board that's been air dried 20 years ago and then kiln dry it. In fact, a lot of the kiln drying processes require a bit of air drying first. Like taking sopping wet lumber and putting it into a kiln can be done, but it's actually a hell of a lot easier to let you know the air do it. Kiln is expensive to operate. So you want to take lumber that's going to be closer 
to um, certainly equilibrium moisture content before you throw it in a kiln. Uh, there also can be a hell of a lot of stress put on you know, really, really wet lumber then put into a kiln. The amount of, of moisture that you gotta bake off there can be quite stressful. So having it somewhat air dried already is a good idea. I think most people will, will uh, air dry their material before they stick it in the kiln. In fact, when we bring material in from overseas that is drying to a European standard, it's already been kiln dried to a European standard, but we will still air dry it first because our EMC or equilibrium moisture content here is still a bit lower than a European standard. So we let it come at equilibrium before we stick it in the kiln and then take it down to six to 8%. Um, uh, his, his next point is, is it gonna affect any of the, the, the properties, the air dried properties of the wood? Well, absolutely. Kiln dried lumber will be harder um, it will be potentially more stable and more than likely the color is gonna be a bit different. When you kiln dry it, you're kind of baking some of those impurities out. You're kind of homogenizing a lot of the, um, the various color variations. So you'll find that air dried lumber tends to be more vibrant in color than kiln dried lumber. Just the reverse case hardening process that I've spoke about in previous episodes, the re-injection of moisture to prevent cell wall collapse is going to, it, it's similar in some ways to like steaming walnut. It's re-injecting moisture. And when you've got the wood that's already heated up, that re-injection of moisture can kind of like blur the lines of some of the colors and, and mellow out some of the colors and things. So certainly a harder wood, um, that's going to be a little bit harder to, to work. It's going to have cell, hardened cell walls. That's why it's harder. But those hardened cell walls are going to make it more resistant to expansion and contraction uh, of, um, of moisture. So it will still expand and contract, but not as quickly and easily as the slightly more damp sponge that is air dried lumber. So there's nothing that says that you can't. Um, the question is, do you need to? You're talking about boards. First of all, it's sawn into boards, so it's really easy to monitor if there are any boring insects. You know, um, the, the board itself, even if it's like an eight quarter or 12 quarter board, you're gonna have evidence of those boring insects. Uh, I talked about earlier with the emerald ash borer story, how it can be hard to tell in a living tree because obviously the bark and stuff is in the way. So that's the first thing. If your boards are live edged and they have bark on them, bark has got all kinds of stuff that bugs are gonna like. That soft, punky, sugary outer layer, inner and outer cambium layer in the bark, as well as even some of the sapwood is what bugs are gonna like. So if you're concerned about it, take that stuff off but then you've got a board that can be easily assessed and looked at for boring holes, active sawdust piles. Even on like a 12 quarter board, you're going to see those sawdust piles. Um, I guess maybe if you got up into like 32 quarter and things like that, it might be, you might have some bugs in there that you can't see. But the point is you can visually inspect your boards and you can store them however you're storing them now and just stay on top of it. You know, if you're going to, if you're storing them outside and you're gonna bring those boards into the shop to maybe work on them, examine them. Be really, really go over with a fine tooth comb, looking for boreholes, looking for active sawdust piles. If you see it, then you've got a bug problem, but it doesn't necessarily mean you, you um, have to kiln dry all your material. In fact, working air dried lumber is an absolute joy, especially for hand tools. I love working with air dried lumber. It just may not be necessary. There's no need to be paranoid. You just need to be aware that it's something to, to keep an eye out for. Um, moreover, um, even if you kiln dry the lumber, 
if you're storing in an area where it can still have access to a lot of bugs, like if you're storing it outside and uncovered, it's gonna take on moisture. There's nothing that says that bugs can infest it later. And I've said this in the past, bugs don't necessarily like kiln dried lumber because all of those resins and things that tend to get be baked and set and hardened, it just doesn't taste as good. Um, you know, some people like burnt toast. Um, some people don't like burnt toast. Some people love it like when the cheese on your chili dog like hardens and it like gets all crusty and burnt. That's an acquired taste. Not all bugs like that, but some bugs do. So some bugs will possibly infest your kiln dried lumber. But again, they're going to go for lower hanging fruit, the sweet stuff, the salt, the, the soft air dried material. So I'm not saying kiln drying it will kill the bugs that's in there, but it won't guarantee that they won't come back if you've got bugs from other lumber. So this brings us to the other point. Should, could I do this at home with a small heater and some insulation? My gut reaction is I wouldn't try it. Um, I would spend a lot of time researching homemade kilns. Um, I would not do this in your house. You're talking about heating up and drying lumber and keeping it hot. That's how one starts fires, folks. Um, it's just, you have to be so cautious here. There's a reason that there are people that specialize in drying lumber. But here's the other thing. In order to heat treat and get a heat treatment certification, you have to bring your lumber internal wood temperature over 135 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not a whole lot, but you have to get it the, the whole like all of the wood up to that temperature. So generally you need to have it at about 150 degrees and you need to hold it there. Now, the, the certification that you get for heat treatment and uh, says have to hold it above 135 degrees for 30 minutes. But here's the thing, you can't just heat it up to like 150, hold it there for 30 minutes. The wood has to all come to that same temperature. So most, um, when people come and do a heat treatment certification, they look that it's been held in the kiln for 24 hours. So a solar kiln is not a solution here because the solar kiln won't hold that high temperature because obviously when the sun goes down, the kiln then cools. Now it heats up again in the, in, the, in the sunshine and it may get up to 130, 150 degrees. A lot of kilns can do that and that can be changed based upon how it's facing the sun, what kind of insulation, all that type of stuff to get the temperature up. But it's gonna continue to drop. You're, not, you're gonna have a very hard time holding that at a consistent temperature for the wood to come up to that internal temperature. It's not impossible, it can be done, but it's gonna require a lot of research looking into solar kilns. Um, just like insulating a box and sticking a heater or a light bulb in there is a recipe for a fire. And you have to be really, really cautious here. You've got to do your research. I would never recommend somebody do this unless you really know what you're talking about. Even if you do do it, that's the sound of me washing my hands. I cannot be held responsible for what can happen. You've got to hold it at that temperature above 135 degrees to actually kill any active insects in the wood. And that's the important part is holding it like internal, the innermost recesses of that board have to be 135 degrees or above and held there consistently. So if you can come up with a kiln that will hold it and you've got some temperature control, so the temperature is not just going to keep going up to the point where you could get combustion, you can hold it at maybe 150 degrees Fahrenheit and keep it there for 24 hours, then you've got a solution that you can work on. Um, only until then that you have ultimate confidence and you've got it far away from your house and someplace that's not going to catch on fire and cause a forest fire and take out your neighbors and all that fun stuff, only then would I say you might do it. And even then, probably any state 
county inspector that comes by, fire inspector would probably shut you down. So if you really want to do this, um, if you really want to be certain, maybe book a fire inspector to come out. Um, and if they say you're good, then you're probably okay. Here again, you're taking advice from a guy who runs a woodworking podcast, not someone who knows what they're talking about. So I would be really, really cautious on, on, on what you do there. So that brings me to uh, my last question. And I kind of alluded to this earlier about the valuation of the uh, Shawshank um, oak tree and how that Sawyer, Miller, however you want to put it, should have an idea of the value of the material he has on his yard. So Brian wrote in and said, I just binged watch season two of Big Timber. You guys remember me talking about that Netflix show called Big Timber. One thing I don't understand is the lumber scaler is Kevin, Kevin's the protagonist in the show, is Kevin required to have the scaler estimate his log value or does he hire him to help him judge future cash flow? So Kevin is the the owner of, of the sawmill and there's a point in the episode, I don't know, episode from season two where the log scaler comes out and is assessing the value of the logs he has in his yard. So that in its a basest form is the job description of what a log scaler does. And there are multiple ways to determine the value to scale a log, different methods. And you can Google this and look at all the different methods. You also find some different methods based upon the US. Some methods are different in Canada. Some methods are different in New Zealand. From region to region, you'll find some differences there. The primary reason is to determine the value of the logs. And this is done based upon dimensions, grade, species, all that stuff. There's a couple of reasons for wanting to do this. First and foremost, you hire a third party to do this. And many times those third parties, they tend to be government employees. You don't want to have one of your own employees doing it because obviously you're going to be slightly biased. And you might round the numbers up a little bit. You need somebody that's impartial. And log scalers are held to certain um, standards and they have to be like within a plus or minus 1%, I think, variation. So they're required, like their job is on the line to be as accurate as possible. And if they're not hitting those consistently, you know, there's corrective action and all that fun stuff. So a third party is going to give you the most accurate value for your logs. Why do you want that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Maybe you're selling logs. Um, a lot of people just sell logs. They don't saw them into boards. So the log scaler is that third party entity that's establishing the, the market rate for those logs. You don't have to sell it at that rate. You could sell below that rate. I don't know why you would. You could sell it above that rate. You may find that, you know, supply and demand. If the demand is high, the market says it's worth this amount per board foot, but like, hey, nobody has it. I'm going to sell it for this. That's called capitalism. That's up to you. But having that base number that is determined by a third-party auditor um, gives you a place to start from. The second reason is, as a business owner, you need to... to um, incorporate the value of your inventory into the overall value of your business. Um, not only for the valuation of your business, but also like a lot of people, especially in the lumber trade where the turn rate is quite slow. Like if you're buying material, you may buy material that you won't actually see for six to eight months. And if you do see it in six months, maybe you can't even sell it for another six months because of drying and things like that, but you've already bought it. So in many instances, the buying has happened based on loans that are taken out against the value of your current inventory. So in order to go to a bank and say, I want a loan to buy you know, X amount of, of logs, the loan will say, okay, well, how much is your current inventory worth? You can now borrow up to X percent of your current inventory. And you've got that kind of line of credit that's based upon the value of your inventory. If your inventory goes up, you can borrow more, which gives you more buying power. So that's another reason to have a log scaler in there. 
Um, the, the other reason is what did I got? Like if you're logging from a concession in the thick of things, any, any Sawyer who's been at it for a while can look at a log and say, that's, you know, 300 board feet today's rate. That's going to be 3000. That's a $3,000 log, but that's a guesstimate at best. And that's you with your very, very biased business owner um, perspective on that. When those logs come back and you've had more time to examine them, look at the species, look at any checks, any wanes, look at any possible defects. And this is what a log scaler is going to do. They're going to get really nitpicky on those defects. That can be hard to see until a log is cut open, but the guys that know what they're doing can look at the outer part of a log and say, okay, that branch is going to cause a defect here, here, and here. This is how it's going to affect the net yield. This is how the, you know, it's going to affect the overall valuation of that log. That log scaler is an expert and does set market rates. So you come back from your concession with a truckload of logs, that log scaler will give you an idea of what you have. So now I've got a yard full of logs. I've got a mill that needs to be fed, you know, because I've got to create boards to, to sell to my customers. My log scaler just grabbed this, this load of logs and valued them quite low. So I'm going to push those to back of my yard a little bit, and I'm going to start sawing the premium stuff because I know that that's what's in demand for my marker right now. Or I've got a guy who comes in who's specifically looking for lower grade, lower value material for his project. Well, my log scaler came in and already valued those logs back there under that you know tarp at a lower value. So I'm going to go grab those in order to mill them up for this guy who needs a lower quality end product. It's just giving you that understanding of what you actually have. And it's not relying upon your own expertise because that can get real dangerous. And you can get in trouble because obviously, you know, you worked hard for that log, so it's worth a mint. Well, the market says no. You know, sorry, Charlie, but the grade of that is actually this. And moreover, that particular species, the market sets that as well. Western red is stupidly expensive right now, like more expensive than a lot of tropical woods right now. Um, hemlock has been kind of noted as trash wood for a long, long time, but hemlock is starting to rise. So you got a lot of guys like local sawyers are like, oh, I'm just going to throw those hemlock logs in the back. But the log scaler comes around and he's doing this all the time. And he's seeing the overall market and he's saying, you know what? Hemlock is starting to come back into demand. So actually what you thought was trash, it may still be trash, but it's a higher quality trash now because he understands that market a lot more because that's his job to go and evaluate all those various logs, which brings us back to the shot shank issue. If this Sawyer was holding that, um, technically it could be part of his inventory and he should have an idea of the value of that material. Now, since he didn't buy it from the landowner, maybe not, right? Maybe it's not technically on inventory. It's just taking up space, which goes back to what was the agreement between the landowner and the Sawyer, you know, where it was it clear on the value of this wood was it established on a contract and all that. If the Sawyer had bought it, then he should have an idea. I can tell you, um, we know the value of every stick of lumber, every shipment of lumber that comes into our yard, because we have to know the total value of our inventory. That total value of our inventory plays into the total valuation of the company. And like I said earlier, our ability to borrow to buy and all that fun stuff. So yeah, Interesting how that kind of comes around. So again, let's let's close this, land this plane by saying the Shawshank story continues to be interesting. I'm really curious to see how it turns out. And uh, please, 
anybody has other questions about that, let me know. So I'll wrap that up by saying great questions this week, folks. Some real nitty gritty details. Love that type of stuff. Keep them coming. Again, lumberupdate at gmail.com or lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form there. Find me on Instagram at lumberupdateshow. Heck, find me at Renaissance Woodworker. People submit questions there as well. I'm happy to take them, happy to answer them. And I look forward to your questions. Thanks, everybody. Go buy some wood, some properly scaled and valued wood from a log. Just don't do it off the side of the road. That's bad.